0: Many um, today say they do not believe in Christianity, they don't believe the Bible, because it is so unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, think about it. I mean, it's just a bunch of fables or, or, or fairy tale stories, come on, Sea splitting, donkeys talking, whales swallowing people, driving out demons, if there is such a thing, raising the dead, come on, calming storms, walking on water. I, more fundamental, I mean, think about it, that, that a God would create everything that there is to include, well, people, all, all the while knowing that those created in his image would rebel against him. Why would he do that? Then in response to that rebellion, God would ultimately send his own son. This sounds like cosmic child abuse. to to quell this rebellion, to win the hearts of rebellious people. Uh, Now, I will admit it's it's a bit unbelievable. But I I would also suggest that it is true. And this morning, Jesus tells us, if you will, the entire story. In 12 verses, he tells the story of the Bible. Calm calm down. We're we're not going to make our way through the entire Bible but but as he tells the story he reveals the purpose of this admittedly fantastic unbelievable story that we call the gospel so i would ask you today are you on the fence not sure whether to believe this 2000 years of church history 3500 years of of bible history uh, not not sure whether to believe this Unbelievable story about Jesus, not sure whether to believe me, maybe your parents, or, or maybe the tugging of the Holy Spirit on your hearts, or maybe you're on the other side, whether to believe your friends, the rising number of unbelievers in this unbelievable story, atheists, or maybe even professors who will, who call it a, a ridiculous religious myth Christians are becoming a minority, you know. We're called old-fashioned, outdated, fundamentalist, out-of-touch, ir- out-of-touch irrational, and, and, and most lately, racist bigots. There are some unbelievable parts of this story. I will also admit something else. While there is much evidence to support the truth of Christianity, it is, in the end, the Christian faith... It takes faith to believe. And so I want to encourage you today to to, to listen to your hearts. Now, I I know our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can trust it? I, I get that. But my prayer this week for you, this morning for you has been that the Holy Spirit will make rebellious hearts subject, skeptical hearts open, indeed dead hearts alive to believe. So if you're on the fence, I want you to pay attention. Turn your Bibles this morning, if you have them, to Mark 12. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's our continuing study of the Gospel of Mark. Again, again we come to this text today. Actually, it's a story, a parable that Jesus tells where we find some rather unbelievable parts to a rather incredible story. I, I, I want to make sure that you understand that. Parts of this story do not make sense. i am just let you know that as we begin. Why would God do what he did? Incredulous. But as we look closer, I think we'll see why. Why this gospel story contains unbelievable and undeniable truth. Mark 12, verses 1 to 12, form our text today. Let's begin, though, by reading this crazy story that Jesus tells us in the first nine verses. Look at it with me. And he, that is Jesus, began to speak to them. The, the antecedent of them are those at the end of chapter 11. It was the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, this official delegation that came from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, to, to, to trap him, to question, by whose authority are you doing these things? Remember that? That was from last week. So he speaks to them in parables. We'll talk about that in a minute. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and, and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. He's going to be an absentee landowner. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. At this point, there's nothing unusual about this. This actually makes sense, a common occurrence, But when he sent this slave, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That's a little odd. And so he sent them another slave, and and they wounded him in the head. It got worse and and treated him shamefully. And then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some, killing others. What? I mean, that's unusual. What's going on here? But look at verse 6. And he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. Are you kidding me? That makes no sense. Those growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Stop right there. What would you do? (laughs) Well, first you say, I would never have sent my son. I mean, that's nonsense. There are some unbelievable parts of this story starting with, with that. It's a parable about a vineyard, common enough. But what the owner does is a stuff of ridiculous myth, right? This is crazy until you stop to realize this is exactly what happened. Before I get to that, let me give you the outline of the text. We're going to look at this parable. Let me tell you at the outset, we're going to spend most of our time there, so if it takes us a while to get to point two, don't pass out. Uh, the, the next, we to see the application of the parable as Jesus quotes psalm, uh, a, a psalm. And this is where we're going to see the, the why and then the response to the parable. That's very important. Verse 12, we'll look at that in a minute. It's a response, frankly, that you can have. You could dismiss it, you could become angry. But there are some other responses for which I am praying. I want you to remember that Jesus has entered his Passion Week. That's his last week prior to being crucified, killed on Good Friday. The last five plus chapters, a full third of this gospel cover that last week. It's the reason for which he'd come. It began with this triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, which in the church calendar is actually a week from today, April 9th, the crowds were crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And the religious leaders, when they heard that, they were infuriated. Why don't you tell your followers to shut up? You see, they didn't believe the story. And without realizing it, they become part of the drama. On Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple, which made him even matter. On Tuesday, he began walking in, teaching in the temple, which begins these verbal battles. These religious leaders had had enough, so they confront him. By what authority are you doing these things? Things like, well, accepting the praise of the crowds with that messianic psalm. Things like making a mess of our temple uh, yesterday, of I mean, healing and, and teaching in our temple. In other words, who do you think you are, Jesus? And the, the battle long, lines were drawn, gauntlet thrown. For the rest of chapter 12, Jesus is going to spar with these religious leaders, chief priests, and scribes, and, and elders, and Herodians, and Pharisees, and Sadducees. We'll talk about what those are as we come to them. And, and while, listen, While he wins every battle, he wins every verbal battle, they think they win the war with his crucifixion on Friday. They just didn't realize it was intermission. And the grand finale called the resurrection was coming Sunday. They didn't realize that when he died, he died for rebellious sinners like them, like you you believe this unbelievable story. As the battles begin, we find at this point, Jesus goes on the offensive after somewhat sidestepping their question about his authority last week, although we saw he really answered it. At John the Baptist told you who I am, by what authority I do this thing. He, after that little battle, he launches into this parable, which frankly condemns them and anybody else who refuses to believe. I want you to know as we get into this text that this can be a feel-good text if you believe, but it's not real feel-good if you don't. Remember, as we jump into this parable, a parable was a teaching method that Jesus used to communicate spiritual truth. A parable literally means to lay alongside something. It was to take a common everyday event and lay that common event alongside a spiritual truth to illuminate that truth. We've seen Jesus, for example, in this gospel talk about seeds and sowers and and mustard seeds. In Matthew, there's a whole lot more. He talks about wheat and tares and merchants and pearls and yeast and bread and fish and nets and shepherds and sheep. And now in Matthew and Mark and in Luke as well, he talks about vineyards and owners and tenants, all very common, everyday things that his hearers would have understood. But we also remember that Jesus said that he spoke in parables so believers would understand, but unbelievers would not. Don't, don't, don't miss that. The, the, the unbelieving, uh, unbelievable parts of this story, of course, they're unbelievable to unbelievers. Of course. So I talked in parables. But this one's kind of interesting. We're going to get to the end and find that the unbelievers that day understood enough to know that this parable was about them. Here's my question: Is it about you? Do you dismiss the son as well? Brings us to the parable. Again, Jesus starts with these common events. We learn of a landowner who decided to plant a vineyard on his land. He he built a wall around it. Again, very common. The wall would have been made of stones or or briars to keep wild animals or marauders um, out. He dug a wine press, of course, because if you're raising grapes, you're not just making raisins. You did it to produce Wine. The wine press was usually carved out of rock or perhaps on hardened ground that was filled with stones and then, and then plastered. There would have been an upper basin in which the grapes would have been piled and pressed, usually by foot. Yum, yum. Then, then, then the grape juice would make its way uh, through a trough to a lower basin, what he calls here a vat, where it would be gathered in wineskins to ferment, which, given its beginning, probably did not take that long. The whole feed thing. Um, the, the The owners also built a, a uh, the owner I mean built a tower in the vineyard to protect his investment. Finally, the new vineyard was then rented out to vine growers. While he went away, they would tend the vineyard with the understanding that they would receive a certain percentage of the produce for their, as their wages. The owner, though, could expect the majority of the harvest, all of this very common, so far so good, no big deal. At harvest time, as harvest time approached, the owner sent a slave. Don't be bothered about that. Um, in New Testament times, slaves were not what we experience here in, the, in our American history is like servants, certainly owned, but servants, sent a slave or a servant to his vineyard to collect his percentage of the harvest. After all, it was his vineyard. It was his. Don't miss that. But in matter-of-fact fashion, we're told that the vine growers took the slave, beat him, And sent him away empty-handed. The word beat is literally to whip to beat repeatedly to remove the skin. They beat him until they flayed his skin. They took his hide off. (laughs) This was an awful beating. But it gets increasingly worse. The second slave they wounded in the head. Not sure exactly what that means, but it seems that they beat him on the head and then they treated him shamefully. Not sure how, shamefully, probably. Threw him out naked and had him run away. The, the, the third one, they killed. Now, now, Matthew says they stoned him. That doesn't mean they drank the wine together. Um, stoning. Just one of my brothers down here to understand that stoning was a common form of capital punishment. They they picked up huge rocks and 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 beat him to death. See, apparently the vine growers thought if they could get rid of the owner of slaves, if they just, don't miss this, if they ignored their responsibility and accountability to the owner, they would be able to keep the entire harvest for themselves. It actually goes beyond that. Jewish law said that if you were able to prove that you worked the land without having to pay rent for three years, then the deed of the land would pass to you. They would become the owners, kind of like squatters' rights. This is significant because we we see that landowners sent three slaves perhaps in three successive years. Point is here. The vine growers were not only trying to steal the produce, they were laying ownership to the vineyard. Now, now, if you're astute, you're already kind of figuring out what this is about. I want you to understand that the vine growers' people have been given this creation of which we are to be the servants, we're to be tending God's creation, but we have the audacity to say, I don't believe it's mine. Keep your hands off it. Now, after this first slave was disposed of, the landowner sends another, then another. It keeps happening, Mark says, servant after servant, some being beaten, some being killed. This is amazing. Okay. Okay. You think, it's, as we're reading through this, it's time for the, the owner to show up and clean house. It's time for him to show up and claim his property and to do away with these miserable wretches. But that's not what he does. This is where the parable takes some rather strange, uh, ridiculous, really unbelievable myth-like elements. Notice verse 6. He had one more to send a beloved son. What? He he sent him last of all to them saying, surely they will respect my son. What? I mean, that's not right. Who in their right mind would do that? This is crazy. Who would send their own son into a place of danger to an awful, uncaring, murderous group of thugs? No one would do that. Would you do that? Would you send your own son or daughter to, to get the wine? No way. It's not worth it. This is crazy. This is fiction. It would never have happened this way. No one would put up with this kind of rebellion, and no one would send his or her own child to such a worthless group of people, would they? You wouldn't. Are you beginning to understand the story? Beloved son has already been used twice in the gospel of Mark at the baptism of Jesus and at the transfiguration when the father's voice was heard from heaven to say, this is my beloved son. Same words. At this point, we, the readers, know that the owner, we're beginning to understand that the owner is God and the beloved son is none other than Jesus Christ. That God would send his own son to a group of murderous, criminal thugs knowing that they would seize him, beat him, whip him repeatedly, flay his skin, abuse him, and kill him is unbelievable. Are we starting to to get it? What would cause God to do that to his own son? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, why would he do that? For God... So loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Are you starting to get it? This is an unbelievable story with undeniable truth. God loves us to the point of incredible, unbelievable self-sacrifice. Again, the elements of the parable are obvious. The owner is God. The vineyard could be the world, but here it's specifically Israel. How do, how do I know that? Well, the religious leaders knew it. Jesus is basically quoting Isaiah chapter 5. Don't have time to look at it, but there Isaiah speaks of God planting a vineyard on a fertile hill. He digs around it, removes stones, plants the choicest vines. He, he built a tower in the middle of it, dug a wine press. Does that sound familiar? He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless grapes. The vineyard in that story very clearly was Israel. Here Jesus takes the parable a step further and says the problem with Israel is as worthless vine growers, the religious leadership, chief priests, scribes, elders, Pharisees, Sadducees, you're the problem. Why? Because, listen carefully, they had erected their own system of righteousness and rejected God's own son. We'll get to God our way and reject the son. You can't do that. I want to be very clear, you can't do that. You must approach God his way. Slaves in the parable, of course, are God's prophets. God sent servant after servant, prophet after prophet to Israel to call them back, to speak truth into their lives. And they were just mistreated and ultimately killed Jeremiah 25 says it this way, and the Lord has sent you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. You, you just won't listen. More than not listening, they abused and killed the prophets. They took Jeremiah, they, they beat him, and then put him in stocks. The king's men then later put him in the bottom of a well or a cistern, and he was in mud up to his neck left him to die. In Jeremiah 26, they killed Uriah the prophet with the sword. Second Chronicles 24, they killed the prophet Zechariah. Uh, with the. Um, uh, in, in, uh, they put him to death in the court of the temple. In the very house of God, they killed one of God's prophets. Over and over, Jewish tradition tells us, lists all of the prophets that they killed. And it continued, frankly, to that particular day. Let's not forget their rejection of John the Baptist. This is what Jesus is referring to. They beat some, they killed some. But listen, God, who is rich in mercy, sent his own son to the vine growers, to these leaders of the nation of Israel. More than that, God sent his own son to a rebellious world who would then kill him. This is where the parable breaks down just a little bit. God did not expect that they would accept his son. They knew that he, they, He knew that they wouldn't. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, which makes this all the more amazing. He knew that they would seize him and kill him. Jesus himself told told, told his disciples six months ago, we're going to Jerusalem where I will be handed over, mistreated and killed. This is an incredible, unbelievable story. And we find the incredible, unbelievable reason for which he came to die. You believe that? It's not like these religious leaders reason among themselves, look, it's God's son, it's the Messiah, let's kill him. But but, but the point is they had received enough evidence to know that this was God's son, like some of you. He demonstrated it by his words and his works, that they should have known, you should know, But they were so committed to maintaining their positions of authority, to living their own lives, the lives, by the way, that they liked. They were so bent on keeping their status in the nation and in the temple that they refused to see and believe. There is a sense in which they were exercising squatters' rights. This is ours. We refuse to recognize your identity. We refuse to recognize your authority. We refuse to give it up, and we will kill you to protect what we think is ours. We like our rebellion. Thank you very much. Who do you think you are to exercise authority over me? You have to understand that this is an amazing story. We're, we're used to hearing it. I know, grow, growing up, many of you, since the little kids in Sunday school, you've heard the story and over. This is amazing. No one would do this. No one would send his own son to imminent death for the sake of others. Except in the face of great love. Ephesians 2. After condemning us as rebellious sinners. But God. Being rich in mercy because of this, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, don't miss this, so that. In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is the why of this unbelievable story, to magnify his goodness and grace. Who would do that except God? Amazing. Exactly. Exactly. Romans 5, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone Maybe he might dare to even die, but amazing. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners in rebellion, Christ died for us. Who would do that? This is a story of amazing, unbelievable, unfathomable love and mercy and grace. Who would send his own son to die for such miserable, wretched thugs? Who indeed but God? And why did the son have to die, by the way? What was the purpose? Peter tells us clearly he bore our sins in his perfect body on the cross. The perfect son of God took our guilt and our punishment that we could be forgiven and made righteous. The debt is paid. Forgiveness is available to a rebellious people, to those who believe the unbelievable. It's called the Christian faith. Jesus finished telling the parable. He asked his hearers to apply it. He asked them, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Matthew and Luke, they respond. Here, Jesus answers his own question. He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to, to others. The truth of the parable is that judgment would come on these religious leaders. And frankly, to all of those who choose their rebellion, listen carefully to all of those who choose their rebellion against God, over God. And the vineyard is then given to others, to those who understand, who owns the vineyard, to those who believe. Likely here he's talking about the apostles, the future church. Jesus goes further in applying it in verses 10 and 12.2. Remember I said it's almost all point one, point two and three. We'll speed through to get to our conclusion Look at those verses with me. We haven't read them yet. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected. Listen, religious leaders. Listen, people who don't believe it's too incredible. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous. Marvelous in our eyes. It's amazing. Jesus changes the metaphor a bit from agriculture to architecture. Quotes some scripture to these guys who were supposed to know the scripture, perhaps with sarcasm. Have you never read the scripture, this passage? And he quotes Psalm 118, which is very, very interesting because that's the psalm that his followers were quoting when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. He quotes the same psalm significant well the people for a time recognized jesus as the son of david and ascribed to him messianic praise these religious leaders would reject him as per the psalm and ultimately crucify him and yet jesus says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone he has been vindicated because this happens all according to divine plan this is why he came He's raised from the dead, just like he said. The cornerstone in a a building is is the most important stone. It had to be perfect. I know some of you have heard that it might be the capstone. I'm not going to get into that. It had to be laid first, and all other stones are laid in relation to it. The builders would then very carefully select the perfect stone for the building. This one will work. This one won't. Jesus says, this stone which you builders have rejected, these religious leaders thought of no value, actually becomes the chief stone. He says, while the religious leaders will reject the son, kill the son, he is the most important stone and will become the cornerstone. And notice this came about from the Lord. This was all his plan and it is marvelous. That word could be translated astonishing. This is astonishing. I know we've heard this a million times. This is astonishing that God would do this. Crazy stuff. Who would think it up? Who but God would come up with this kind of plan, this sending of his own son, the rejection of his own son as a way to vindicate him and make him the chief cornerstone, as a way of bringing out our redemption? Who but God would do that? This is not legend. This is not myth. This is something only God could and, in fact, would do. It's marvelous, and it magnifies his amazing grace. We're supposed to hear this story and fall to our knees. Are you kidding me? If you haven't heard anything else, hear this. Jesus bringing the metaphors together. He says to these religious leaders, by your own words, as wicked growers, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to others. Who are the others? Again, it is those who realize who the owner is, those who realize they have nothing, everything belongs to him, and they come broken to the owner. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2. It's a long passage, but I I need to read it. Follow along with me. It's critically important. And coming to him as to a living, coming to Jesus as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, Right? Many in our culture choosing to reject him. Some of you choosing to reject him. But he's choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And look, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. I promise you, it's incredible. It's an unbelievable story. But if you will just believe, it's called the Christian faith. If you will believe, you will not be disappointed. This Precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, dismiss it, just a myth, who choose to live in their own rebellion rather than to submit to the owner, the God of the universe, the stone which the builders rejected that became the very cornerstone also becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word And to this doom they were appointed, for you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and so on. The kingdom belongs to those who turn from their sin and their rebellion and falling in brokenness on the stone. Trust in his grace and his mercy. Otherwise, listen very carefully, this stone will fall on you and scatter you like dust. Literally, this stone will pulverize you. It brings us to our last point, our conclusion, the response of the religious leadership to this parable. Verse 12, look at it with me. And they were seeking to seize him, made him matter. Yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him, walked away, and went their way. I want to say to you this morning that there is a sense in which Jesus is speaking to us. You have a choice to make. There are actually one of four responses that I will go through very quickly to this particular story. First, you can say this is crazy. Lots of people are doing it. Join the bandwagon. Jump on the bandwagon. Go ahead. This is crazy. This is the stuff of myth. No, no one would do this. You can dismiss the claims of Christ and, eh, like like people have done through the centuries and around the world, and are even doing more so today. But the fact is, you have to close your eyes to the facts, to the unbelievable yet undeniable truth of his existence and his awesome, powerful life and works. You you can cover your eyes, you can stop up your ears, and refuse to believe. You can shrug it off, and you can walk away unchanged. Go ahead. I can't talk you in. Listen, I'm going I'm to say this very. I can't talk you into believing. Walk away. Second response, though, is you can get angry, just like these religious leaders of that day did. What what do I mean? You can get angry because someone is actually telling you, that would be me, by the way, telling you that you are wrong. You're in your sin, and the sinful choices that you make are not done in a vacuum. They are committed against a holy God. You can get angry that someone would dare call you into account and tell you that there's coming a day when you will give an account of your life to God, when you will have to deal with the stone that we call Jesus, you will one day answer to God and you can get angry that I'm telling you and understand that the stone will pulverize you. Third, you can believe. You can choose, given all of the evidence that Jesus was who he said he was, that he is the son of God, and that he came on that first Christmas, Christmas sent by the owner of the universe to willingly die for your sins at the first Easter that we celebrate in a couple of weeks. You can choose to acknowledge that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, the most important foundation stone of your life, and you can come to him broken and mourning over your sins, seeking his forgiveness, seeking him for salvation, because it is found in no one else. Listen to what Peter said in one of his earliest sermons. Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified and God raised from the dead, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation. Listen carefully. You want to go find it somewhere else? Listen carefully. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. He's it. Third response is to believe that Jesus was and is the Son of God and that he died for miserable thugs like us. Fourth response I trust is for the majority of people in this room, most of you are already Christians. You've already accepted Christ as your, as your Savior, as the chief cornerstone, the capstone of your life. I want you to again be overwhelmed with this truth. It is why we observe communion once a month. I know we've heard it over and over and over again. But here's what I want. I want you to be amazed by this story that perhaps has become familiar. Don't let contempt set in. This is an amazing, unbelievable story that the God of the universe would send his own son to die for the likes of you and me. Amazing. Amazing story. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you have done for us in the person of your son. Who would do this? Who would send his own son, her own son, to to, to die? And yet that, Father, is what you did. You sent your son to die for us so that we could be forgiven, so that in the ages to come we would magnify your glory and grace. This is all about making much of you, and we do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.